0: Hello folks, Dr. Tim Jordan here, and welcome back to another episode of Raising Daughters. I'm always glad that you stopped by here to listen to these. And I I think if you're the kind of parent who wants to be an influence in your daughter's life now through the teen years and forever, I think this is the right place to stop by every week or two. And I decided to do a topic today to to interview uh, an expert about an issue that I think impinges all of us. I, I see so many girls in my counseling practice in my retreats who are struggling with setting boundaries and with boys crossing their boundaries and this whole issue of consent. Then you know, recently, I I probably should not date these podcasts, but recently Andrew, uh, Governor Cuomo in in New York has gotten in trouble for for having (laughs) crossed boundaries and sexual harassment. So it's been a big issue, especially in the news and for our, our kids and all of us for a long time, especially the last five or so years, and we don't get much information, like how do you actually parent kids to learn about consent? And so I asked an expert, her name is Christy Keating, and I'll let her introduce herself in just a second here. But she's, she was a lawyer for, what, 20-ish years, and she was a criminal investigator. She developed an expertise in sexually violent predator cases, and then she had a couple of her own daughter's. <laughs> And then she switched, which I want to ask her about. And she, she became a certified parent coach. And that's what she does now. And she she's a CEO of a company called Savvy Parents Safe Kids. And I'll, I'll make sure at the end of this podcast, that I give you, or she'll give you her, her contact information. But but welcome to the show. I really appreciate you stopping by with us here.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I'm really uh, honored to be here and grateful that people um, are willing to have this conversation because I think it's, it's an important one. It's a scary one, but we need to be having it.
0: So you switched gears big time. Um, I'm not sure how long ago, but from being a lawyer and a criminal investigator to a parent coach. So just briefly tell us like how that shift came.
1: Yeah. So I was actually a criminal prosecutor for um, about 20 years. And, um, you know, I loved my my work there during my time as a prosecutor. I handled everything from. You know, a DUI case, DUI cases and petty theft and, you know, misdemeanors up through, um, you know, intentional homicide cases. Um, But where I really kind of landed and where I spent a lot of my career was prosecuting first um, sex offenders. And then in Washington State, where I live, we have a pretty specialized statute um, that allows us to prosecute the most dangerous of our offenders in a unique way. And so for the last four years or so of my career, I spent my time prosecuting sexually violent predators. And, you know, through all of that um, experience of of working on these types of cases, I got a, unfortunately, a very real feel for what's possible and kind of what's going on out in the world, you know, um, with our, with our teens and with adults as well. But it became a subject that really mattered to me. But as you said, about halfway through my time at the prosecutor's office, I became a parent myself. Um, I currently have two daughters. One is a tween and one is still in her preschool years. So, um, you know, we're at different stages of this conversation with each of them, but, um, you know, everything changes as you know, when you become a parent and, uh, the biggest reason behind my, my shift was really twofold. One, I found myself actually absolutely fascinated um, with sort of ideas around good parenting and, and theories of, of parenting and positive discipline and all of those things. And I also found that, you know, my identity had shifted and the way that I saw myself as a prosecutor and the way I saw myself as a, as a mom Um, it, it just wasn't kind of the balance wasn't there for me and I couldn't be the kind of prosecutor that I wanted to be and be the kind of mom that I wanted to be. And so I went back to school, um, through a, well, through the parent coach Institute, which was affiliated with, um, Seattle Pacific university. And I got my certification as a parent coach. And then I also got certified as a positive discipline educator. So I kind of brought those two worlds together. And I work with parents in a bunch of different ways, but I I lecture um, and do workshops nationally on this issue of consent and also child sexual abuse prevention, you know, for our little ones. Um, So it's been an interesting evolution, but I love it. And I'm so grateful to get to work on the side of prevention now, as opposed to dealing with these issues after they've already arisen.
0: And you're a great example. I I tell girls all the time. I talked to a couple of girls yesterday in in my counseling practice who are stressed out. They're starting their senior year in high school and they have this, they've been bombarded with this idea that you should know your whole life story by now. You should know what college you're going to if you're going to college you should know what your major is you should know what your career is going to be they really believe that if they don't know that they're they're behind and yet if i tell them please interview every adult you bump into and say when you were my age when you were 16 or 18 or 21 did you know you'd be where you are now at age you look like you're about what 30 25 or 30 wherever (laughs) you are when you find your thing like you found your thing did you know that when you were when you were my age, and I, 99% of parents I've talked to, and I've talked to parents all over the world, say they had no clue.
1: No, um, no, well, it's uh, very kind of you to say uh, I'm 30. I'm obviously a little above that. Um, you know, that the big five-oh is approaching rapidly for me, but I had no idea. I never would have guessed this ever. And, you know, when I started college, I thought I was gonna be a physician, um, then a teacher finally landed on lawyer, um, in my senior year of college. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, threw myself wholeheartedly into that profession, loved it. I'm still a licensed attorney. I keep my license current. Um, but my goodness at age 18, I never would have imagined that I'd be working with parents and, um, and talking about, you know, sexual assault and sexual abuse and, and how we prevent those things.
0: Yeah. You know, um, parents sometimes will ask me about when they should have the talk, you know, the sex talk, uh-huh. as if it's like you sit down at one little narrow sliver of time and, and there you, you, you know, you just smash them with all kinds of information. And I think this whole thing about consent is probably a similar kind of thing where it's not about a talk. It's about starting when they're little, little kids. Uh, there's yeah. a whole bunch of things that they can learn along the way. I'm, you're nodding your head. So t- tell us when, when is it, how, when, how do you start with kids teaching them about consent? Yeah.
1: So I love that you said that because I am a big advocate of, you know, it is no longer just one talk or the talk. And I really talk to parents both about, you know, the issues around sex and sexuality and consent, which of course folds into that um, really should start probably far younger than most parents would anticipate. Um, And, you know, as I said, I have a a preschooler. My younger daughter is four years old, and we are already starting those conversations and, in fact, have been having them with her really since she was an infant. Now, do you sit down and talk with an infant, you know, about consent in the same way that you would an 18-year-old? Of course not. Um, But we started really sending the message to her that um, she has control over her body. She gets to decide you know, what, when, where, who, um, and how with her body. Um, you know, obviously there are exceptions. When we go to the doctor, the doctor needs to, uh, you know, give you a vaccine or whatever it might be. And, and mom or dad is present for that. Um, but the conversations start way earlier, you know, with, with little ones, um, preschool, you know, elementary school years, consent is really um, all about modeling and it's also about reinforcing that idea that they get autonomy over their bodies. And sometimes that's hard. You know, it's it's pretty common um, when we are in social settings, which, you know, haven't been happening for many people a lot the last few years with COVID. But, you know, when families are together, it's not that uncommon to hear parents say something like, you know, go go give grandma a hug or go sit on Uncle John's lap or you know, um, kiss grandpa, goodbye. Um, And what we're kind of forgetting in those moments is that it's not really up, it should not be up to us, uh, whether our children, boys or girls um, sit on John's lap or hug grandma or kiss grandpa, goodbye. So we can start at those really early ages by saying, you know, it's time to say goodbye. How would you like to do that, right? Hug, high five, knuckles, wave whatever feels right for you. Um, and we can start in that way really sending that clear message that they get to decide.
0: And there's so, so many those little moments. There's so many those little moments that if daddy's tickling your four-year-old and she's and she's then she and it's funny for a while, but then she's kind of like, you know, stop, I don't want to do anymore. It's easy to just plow through. I know as a I have a grandson who's three and a half. I, I'm conscious of that more now than I was before. About when he when it's time to stop, it's okay. Even yeah. if you're having fun, but he's not.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. As soon as that word "stop" or "don't" or "I don't like this," you know, as soon as those words are said, it it should stop immediately. Um, and we really, I think, we really have an obligation as adults to send a really clear message to our children, both that we will respect their boundaries that they can enforce their boundaries and that we will back them up in doing that.
0: Yeah, you know, I find working with girls I, in my camps, my retreats, sometimes we, uh, we do role playing around different issues. And one of the things that I, I find that girls need a lot of help with is, is knowing the difference between being assertive versus aggressive. Yeah. Because girls have been, condi- even though it's the year that it is, and, we, and they should, we should have gotten past this, they're still being conditioned to be good girls who are pleasers and, and all that kind of thing. And so they think that if they say no to somebody, they don't say they don't want to get, give grandma a hug, then they feel like, you know, that they shouldn't, if they're being a bad kid, they right. feel like if they say no to somebody that's being aggressive and they, and they're, and they're being mean. And so they need to untangle those, those two concepts because otherwise they're, they're going to have a really hard time setting boundaries.
1: For sure. And boundary, you know, learning that the difference between those two things um, is critical to young girls, certainly in the arena of consent around, you know, sex and bodies and all of that. But let's be honest, it also matters, you know, in the workforce and in parenting and, you know, learning uh, all these other areas of our lives and in in the relationships that we are in, that we can be assertive and we can, you know, set our own boundaries without being mean or aggressive okay. or, you know, rude. Um yeah, I I think that distinction is really important. And it is a hard one uh, for girls to, they can understand it intellectually, but how to put that into action is often more challenging. And so that's where we have to really dive into some of these conversations with them.
0: And that's why we do role playing, because we'll say, they'll set up situations, we will say, show us how you would handle that. And then the, the whole group will give them feedback, like, you know, you were too wimpy or Are you didn't look them in the eye, or or they teach they have to they have to learn about their body language. They have to learn about their tone of voice. They have to learn about all those kinds of things. Otherwise, it doesn't just come naturally to a lot of girls, especially with the conditioning that says, you know, be a good girl.
1: Yeah, I love that you do that with them. It's it is actually something that I talk about with parents as well as doing some role playing with their kids because again, we can talk about this from sort of that intellectual standpoint and what consent means and, you know, that consent should always be present, et cetera, et cetera. But when a a, a child, boys or girls again, and I know we're primarily talking about girls today, but when they get into those positions, they're like, yeah, I know that that's what it should be, but I don't know what to say. And when they have some language available Mm -hmm. to them and some, you know, kind of on the, on the fly, um, phrasing that they can use, that's really empowering to them because now they're not struggling for the words in the moment, but they've practiced this, they've talked about this and they know, you know, what, um, what they can say uh, that makes them feel again, like they are being assertive, but not aggressive.
0: You know, another thing I, I, I notice, and, and I'll see what, what you, what your experience is. A lot of times girls, I'm thinking of older girls, they kind of know, what to say, uh, they're clear about, not always, but they're sometimes clear about what they want. But because they've had some past experiences, that's kind of lowered their uh, deservability, if that's the right word. Yeah. Um, It's really really hard to take care of yourself and set a good boundary if you don't have the confidence that says, I deserve to do this. I deserve to take care of myself. So I think that piece about self-love, self-confidence is huge, because you can practice all you want. If you don't have that inherently then you're probably not going to set a good boundary
1: oh i agree with you totally and that's you know that's one of the most challenging things i think about raising daughters especially as they hit those tween and teen years when there are so many messages coming at them from every direction about you know where their value lies and um and how valuable they are uh and sort of their, you know, their worth in the larger society. And that—that that is, man, if I had a solution for that problem, <laughs> I'd be a very wealthy woman, but it, it is, it's tough. And that's where the really, I kind of think the only way through um, is active, engaged, hands-on um, parenting, talking through these issues, and, and really helping them arrive at some of their own conclusions about their value with us bolstering them and backing them.
0: Yeah. I also find, I agree with you. That's a great point. I also find that helping them talk through what stories they've made up about themselves based upon what's happened to them. Because if they've been, I saw a girl recently, she's not a girl, she's a young woman. She's a junior in college. And she just broke up with a, a very toxic boyfriend of a year and a half. And they were off and on, off and on, off and on, and she finally uh, pulled the trigger. And and he was abusive in a lot of ways, mentally, very manipulative, and was using her for all kinds of things. And she kind of put up with it. Um, but I, you know, I as I got to know her a little bit, you know, I, her story involved that she was adopted, mm-hmm. and so there's some stuff in there about know why my parents give me up she also had a hard time keeping friends in middle school and high school she was left out kicked out of groups so then she developed more of a belief system that said I'm not good enough I'm not pretty enough what's wrong with me I'm annoying people don't like me and so now she's carrying that into her dating relationships and so her what some people call her perceived mate value is low like I don't deserve to take care of myself because if, if I don't do what he says he'll leave And that comes from, that comes from a belief system. So I also think the other thing for parents to help their kids with along the way is when they have experiences to make sure that they're making better sense of it.
1: Yeah. You know, it's so interesting that you just triggered a a thought in my mind. Um, And I'm guessing that you're familiar with Brene Brown and some of her Mm -hmm. work. Um, She uses a technique when you're in conflict with someone. Um, I think she tells a story about using this with her husband, but to say the story I'm telling myself is, you know, X, Y, and Z. And I use that sometimes with some of my, the parents that I work with, when they are in conflict with their kids to say, you know, the story I'm telling myself is that, you know, I'm a terrible parent or that you're a kid that is headed for doom and, you know, all of these things. So they can sort of work through some of those stories and it strikes me and I I haven't um, done this, but what you just said really, Triggered the idea in my mind that that might be a useful phrase for some of our daughters as well, you know, to say the story I'm telling myself right now. And when we do that, we recognize it is a story. And there, you know, stories have elements of truth and elements of fantasy, usually. Um, and so when we can phrase it that way, you know, maybe we can help our girls start to see that. Their internal belief system might not reflect what the greater world is actually seeing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I, my, after doing retreats and camps for 30 years, I, I I see it so clearly that unless they reframe those experiences into what's true, um, they're, they're going to be vulnerable. Yeah. Uh, to a lot of things. And for they sure. might attract, or it might attract things they don't want to attract and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah.
0: Tell me, do you, do you ever work when you talk, work with parents? Do you ever talk to them about uh, teaching their their daughters and sons about trusting their intuition, how that's such a great, um, not a weapon, I shouldn't say that, it's a great tool for them to take care of themselves when it comes to consent?
1: I do. I do. Um, So, you know, and I actually use, I talk about intuition in a lot of different scenarios. I think we as parents, you know, when we're parenting little ones, uh, need to use our intuition, um, when it comes to the safety of our kids and, you know, intuition isn't going to be a surefire thing, right? We're going to get it wrong sometimes. Um, but I tell parents, you'd rather listen to that intuition and be wrong than not listen to it and be right. Um, and I, same thing goes for our, our teens and tweens, um, and that they should really listen to that inner voice. We, we get really good at talking ourselves out of our inner voices, right? Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in there. So yes, I do um, always advise both parents and kids to listen to themselves. And when something feels off or unsafe, or, you know, like a boundary might get pushed that they don't want to have pushed, um, that they should act on that because again they'd rather listen to that intuition and be wrong than ignore it and and wish they hadn't
0: which means that when they're in situations they need to keep checking in with themselves am yeah. i comfortable do i feel pressured does this feel right um, why yeah. is my heart pounding you know I, um, there's there's body sim- there's body signals there's all kinds of intuition kinds of things i don't think we talk about that enough but i think that I read, I read an interesting book. Oh, it's probably been five or 10 years ago. It's called The Gift of Fear.
1: I was just going to that? guess that's what you're going to say. Yes. Oh. By Gavin DeBecker.
0: Yeah. And it was an interesting book because he, I remember one of the things that I, I remember from it was how like somebody would uh, had been part of, I uh, had noticed a robbery or something, or someone had been raped or whatever. And then, like the police might interview that person and and they would say i didn't really notice this or that but then he had a better way of interviewing people where he could he basically said to them your your brain is this computer that is noticing thousands and millions of things every second that you're not conscious of so when you get that little twinge or that little funny feeling in your stomach." You may not, your, your conscious brain might not say, oh, it's because this guy's wearing gloves and it's summer uh, in the convenience store, <laughs> but, but your brain at some level knows that. So that's why he, I think one thing things at least I got in the book was that's why you trust it because your brain has, has, has taken in so much more information than yeah. you're even aware of. So trust it.
1: Yeah. I mean, we really, I think are biologically designed for that. You know, it's a, it is a survival instinct. And as I said, I think we are, um, you know, when we hear, oh, trust your gut. Um, I, I think that is sometimes thought of as a, you know, a, an immature way of looking at things or a, um, a, a feminine way of looking at things. And the reality is, as you've just pointed out, like our brains are designed to do so much work that we don't even realize um, that I, I do believe there's a lot of wisdom when we learn to trust our gut. But as you said, um, it, we have to also cue into those small things because when we trust our gut, you know, that might be a, a queasy feeling in your stomach. It might be um, in one person, you know, a fluttering heart, as you said. It might be like your fingers tingling, or it might just be this nagging sense in your mind that something's off. I don't know what it is, but something's off. And it's going to be different from person to person. And it will also be different from situation to situation. So, being aware of our own bodies and our stress reactions and all of those is really critical. And it's also, you know, it's one of the things I talk about with with parents um, as they are trying to learn to regulate their own frustrations and anger, you know, in parenting um, and to teach their little ones to regulate their emotions, paying attention to those bodily cues. So if we start doing that in a, in a sense, or it doesn't have anything to do with safety, but just it helps us understand ourselves and regulate ourselves better. Then, you know, it's easier to cue into some of those things. I think when, yeah. when it might be a safety issue.
0: And I think just one other layer to that. Um, I also beyond any kind of a sexual thing or consent thing. Um, I, I tell parents that if your kids make a mistake of any kind. It's, I think it's really valuable for them to go back in time and say, let's talk about what happened and mm-hmm. help kids become aware that there was like a little choice point. Yes. You know, do I pick yeah. the dark side or the light side? <laughs> and in that moment, when you make a mistake, you pick the dark side. And to say, did, were you aware in that moment that that your gut was you know, that your gut was saying, eh, time out? you we have an internal alarm that kind of says, I oh, don't know, you might want to think about this. And yeah. I want them to become aware about those moments. Like, how does your alarm sound? Where do you feel it? And then in that moment, you ignored it. And you qu- made the mistake. Why do you think that's always I guess, such important? Why do you think you ignored it? When it comes to the consent thing, I notice with girls is uh, several things. And one of them I, I want you to uh, talk about, uh, uh, talk about anything you want. But one of them is, is their sense of their sense of deservability, meaning he's so cute. And if I said no, he was going to think I was lame. And there's 50 other girls here who are way prettier than I am. And so I thought if I said no, and then all that. So some of it is that stuff. But also they aren't aware enough that substances blunt your alarm.
1: Yes. Yeah. So oh there's a lot to unpack there. I mean the deservability yeah. piece as we as we talked about is is a challenge because um, you know, as we've already said, there are so many messages that are bombarding our girls every day, um, and and so many different um, messages, not just about their value as humans, but their you know their body their bodies and the value that their bodies have. And the example I think of is, you know, we have a number of schools around the country with dress codes, right, where a girl can't wear. Um, you know, a shirt that has spaghetti straps to school. Um, and so we are passing judgment on their bodies or, you know, the distractibility that they're causing to boys. And then you turn that around you look in the media and I don't know if you saw this, but there was a recent story about the um, Norwegian beach handball team, um, which I don't, I'll be honest with you. I don't even know what beach handball is, but, um, but they were fined by the international you know, regulating body, um, because they chose to wear shorts instead of tiny bikinis.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: it's like, you know, girls are getting really mixed messages. On you know, the one hand, they're showing too much skin, and on the other, they're not showing enough skin, and they're going to get in trouble either way. So that deservability piece, you know, there's those messages, um, as you pointed out, your client, you know, who had some, some messages from birth, and those been, you know, feelings of abandonment. But those can arise in any number of different ways. And then you have those cultural messages that get layered on top of that. And so that is definitely one challenge. And then you put all of that into a, you know, I'm trying to think of the analogy, like a mixing machine, if you will, um, where alcohol is involved. Um, And the, the danger has just gone up substantially for everyone, um, but certainly for, for our girls. And the one thing I do want to say is, you know, when parents are talking with cons- about consent with their daughters, it is critically important that conversations about safety and conversations about consent be separated and, be, and have those separately. And here's why I say that, you know, the message that our daughters, and frankly, you know, many people who are raising daughters are also raising sons. Um, And so the the messages that our children um, need to hear is that from a consent standpoint, any one of us should be able to walk down, you know, the middle of uh, Broadway in New York City, let's say, Times Square, with not a stitch of clothing on, totally naked, drunk, high, whatever, and be 100% safe, right? We have that, that should be our, our inalienable right as humans that, you know, when we are in a vulnerable place that other people are taking care of us instead of taking advantage of us. And I want our kids to get that message that that's a Right. And that it doesn't matter how much somebody's had to drink, what drugs they've used, what clothing they're wearing or not wearing, that doesn't change what they have a right to, which is that decision, or that ability to decide what happens to their bodies. That's kind of the consent piece. And then we can you know, dive further into what does consent really mean and what should it really mean and all of that. And then on the flip side, there's also the critically important piece of talking about safety. Because although in our ideal world, you know, our hypothetical person is standing in the middle of Times Square, drunk with no clothing on and safe, in the real world, (laughs) we know that in the middle of a fraternity party or, you know, any gathering um, with somebody who has had too much to drink and, you know, um, is wearing revealing clothing or not any clothing, whatever it might be, that there are some safety considerations there that our, our daughter's and our sons need to be made aware of and need to understand. And so, you know, we, we have to kind of give those mixed messages. If you will, you deserve to be safe. You're not always safe. Right. And that that's hard as a parent because we don't want to send that mixed message. We don't want to tell them they're not always safe, but we have to, um, or else we can't give them the tools that they need uh, to at least try to protect themselves and then we need them to understand that if they make a mistake or, you know, don't don't succeed in protecting themselves, that they're not a there's nothing wrong with them. They're not a bad person. And certainly, if somebody has pushed through their boundaries, um, they have done nothing wrong. Like that's yeah. the other message that you know comes in this package. That's another, a big mix of messages.
0: <laughs> another mixed message girls tell me. I've heard it so many times it's it's disturbing and I bet you heard this when you were a criminal prosecutor is I've had girls who have had their boundaries crossed in the hallways at school groped or worse mm-hmm. um, and they reported it and nothing happens that's right and even yeah. if, I've even had a few of the girls where there's cameras in the hallways and they picked up on it and nothing happened to the guy yeah and so part Just of the next boys, message being is, boys right well, yeah. So part of the next message is, you know, tell us if anything happens, blah, blah, blah. But then nothing happens. And so they're left with, I'm not safe at school.
1: That's right. Yeah. And I say that boys will be boys in a very tongue in cheek, you know, uh, dripping with sarcasm, if you will. But that's kind of the message that um, that is sent. And, you know, oh, it's not that big of a deal. It's, you know, yeah. but you mentioned earlier, um, you know, Governor Cuomo that you know, cross some boundaries. It, it, the, the uh, investigation seems to have revealed Um, and it's not that far of a stretch to imagine, you know, a boy in high school crossing some of those boundaries in the hallway, becoming a person in a place of power that crosses those boundaries in the workplace. Um, You know, that's how that progresses. So as adults and as, you know, as the parents and my goodness, school administrators and teachers and, and those that have some degree of power right now, we've got to get real clear on what our values are and what consent means and what it doesn't mean. And, you know, we've got to start holding kids accountable early on so that they understand when, when it's a more minor Mistake, You know, elementary school, a boy reaching and snapping a girl's bra strap, that's not okay. That's mm-hmm. not okay. But we often chalk it up to teasing or, you know, yeah. so we, I think we've got to get really clear from the top down um, and start setting policies that we uphold and that we've, you know, that we enforce um, in order to start changing some of the messages that our girls get and that our boys get.
0: Yeah. I, I looked at your website uh, this weekend, you know, in preparing for this and I saw you had a, a book listed on there that I had, I'd read last year. It, it's called Missoula oh, uh, by John Krakauer. And uh, I would recommend if any parents interested in this issue, it's a great book. He, he had, he's a great author, number one, but he also, he went to uh, Missoula is, is Missoula, Montana. It's a town where the university of Montana is. And they, they had, they have, or had the highest number of, on campus, you know, rapes per student wherever it is of anywhere in the country. So he investigated why that was true. And he but he also weaves in lots of just general data and information about boundaries being crossed and rapes on campus and all that kind of a thing. And it was disturbing. I bet it was even you you live this about how few of the cases are prosecuted, and the ones that are prosecuted, how few of the of of them get get in trouble.
1: Yeah. You know, it, I mean, Missoula is a phenomenal, phenomenal book, and it just um, it's nonfiction, but it reads in know, it's a yeah. riveting read. You know, it's not it's not dry nonfiction um, and it's heartbreaking. Um, and the reality is and, you know, you're, you'll see slightly different statistics in different parts of the country, but. A sexual assault is one of the most underreported, if not the most underreported offense um, that there is. Also, child sexual abuse, um, and once it's reported, a lot of the investigators approach the investigations. And it's it's funny. I'm also reading a book right now. It's fiction called Bear Town by um, uh, Bachman. Is I can't remember his first name. Um, And it's it's almost like a a fictional account in some ways of what happens in Missoula. Um, But, you know, once it's revealed what happened, then what we tend to do is, and the investigators often who are not well-trained, ask all the questions of the girl, right? How much did you have to drink? Did you say no? Did you go up to the room voluntarily? Did you, you know... Um, And it's investigated in a way that's really almost like they're investigating the young woman involved as opposed to the alleged perpetrator. And I want to just, you know, give a caveat here. And we've been talking a lot in the context of girls or young women being, you know, assaulted by boys or young men. And, you know, in fairness, sexual assault does go the other direction. And certainly there are there are also same sex um, assaults, you know. Um, that that we need to acknowledge, but the very large majority of sexual assault is perpetrated by boys and men um, against girls and women. And so I'm using that as a generalized um, sort of phrasing, but, you know, so you've got the, it's underreported to begin with, then oftentimes when it's investigated, it's investigated in a, in a way that it, different than a homicide would be investigated, right? Where yeah. we're not, blaming the victim. Um, And then if it gets, you know, if a police report is really put together and it's sent to the prosecutor or the DA, um, then they look at it and decide, is there enough evidence? Maybe, maybe not. Um, Because although in the rule of law, one person's statement can be proof beyond a reasonable doubt, the reality is juries don't like that you know? Um, and so then you get, even if it is prosecuted, what happens when it goes to a jury, if it goes to a jury, all of which is, you know, horrific for the the girl involved, another wonderful book. Well, I say wonderful that I'm not sure that's the right word, but, um, is know my name by Chantel Miller, who was the young woman assaulted by um, Brock Turner at Stanford university, who was, he was a swimmer there. Um, and that, you know, for anyone that wants to understand what the process is like for a survivor of this, that paints a really um, bleak picture and helps mm-hmm. us understand why more of these cases are not, are not going, you know, are not resulting in criminal convictions.
0: Yeah. I, I, I saw that book on your website and I, I bought it. I haven't read it yet, but it's, yeah. on, my, it's on my pile. Here, let, let me. It, that's great information. I, let me bring it back home a little bit. Yeah. Because... Because a lot of the girls who I talk with in middle school and high school, uh, some of the first times that their boundaries are crossed in a kind of a sexual way is the groping in the hallways, but also boys pushing them for pictures. And so I'm wondering, yes. how, what do you, how do you coach parents when they have uh, to talk to girls about sexting, or maybe they found out their their daughter has sent pictures? How do you coach them?
1: Yeah. Oh gosh, this is the the question that I get from so many parents in this day and age because. You know, again, I'm going to date myself a little, but when I was growing up, we passed notes back and forth in the in class or in the hallway, and that's you know how we communicated with one another. And now those notes have gone digital and they've gone photographic. Um, It's it's not terribly developmentally abnormal for teens to be doing this. The problem is that they don't understand the potential long term repercussions of it. So a couple of things. First, when we are talking with our kids, um, well, I always say the antidote to all of this is empathy, right? So we need to be building empathy with our boys and our girls so that as a ground, as the groundwork. Um, second, when it comes to electronic media, which includes, you know, cell phones, um, text messages, emails, Snapchat, Facebook, Instagram, you name it. It doesn't matter what the app is that they're using. Anything that is put on an electronic device of any kind, computer, iPad, tablet, phone, should be for all intents and purposes considered public and permanent. So we can tell our kids lots of scare tactics and scary stories and all the terrible things that could happen. That's not going to resonate very well with our tweens and teens who whose brains are not fully developed, they are processing risk in a different way um, than we are. And the idea of forever doesn't always resonate with them, right? Uh, frankly, it doesn't resonate for a lot of adults either hmm. um, who are not digital natives. So we have to first start the conversation with empathy and then the idea of public and permanent. And then um, what I really like to do um, is do an activity with, teens and tweens, and this is actually in a handout that I'll offer to your listeners at the end of our our talk, is to do an exercise called the Circles of Intimacy, where you you look at, it almost looks like a bullseye, so it's a bunch of um, concentric circles, and at the center of the circle is our child, and then we ask them, you know, in the second circle out, who is... um, you know, who's the most important people or the people that you trust the most? Now, fair warning to all the parents listening when we're talking about tweens and teens, those parents might hope to be in that second circle. (laughs) They are not likely to be, right? Um, Oftentimes it will be their best friends, you know, a small group of close friends. The next circle out might have mom, dad, or, you know, close family members, sibling, you know, something like that. And then it goes out further from there. And what we want, what we can use this to, to illustrate with our kids is that the further you know, the out we get in those concentric circles, the harder it is to keep that private information close to us. So visuals can be really powerful with kids. Another great visual, and I, I have to confess, I saw this on the internet, um, is you take, you give your, your child a tube of toothpaste and a plate and you say, all right. I want you to take that tube of toothpaste and squeeze all of it out onto the plate. And then you let them do that. Once they're done, you say, great, now put it back in. (laughs) And they'll look at you like you're crazy. I can't put it back in. And that can be a really powerful visual for helping them understand that the photos that they send the pictures or the, the words that they say, the comments that they put, you know, and this is not just around the idea of sexting, but just internet Um, etiquette, if you will, anything that they put out there, they, they can't put it back in. Um, So that's kind of the, some of those little things you can do before something happens. Now, if you find out that your child has sexted, has sent a photograph of themselves, um, the first task would be to try to figure out who it went to and how far out that went or was shared. You know, if it went to one individual and you find out fairly quickly, that would be a situation where certainly contacting that child's parents and trying to get a hold on it quickly is important. Um, if it has been distributed beyond that, I always recommend that parents contact um, what's called NICMIC, which is the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And this is their area of specialty and they do a great job of tracking down, trying to track down and get these photos, you know, getting these photos pulled back. The other thing it's critical that our children understand, and this will vary from state to state, but the law is always playing catch-up with our, you know, with technology mm-hmm. and modern sensibilities and whatever. And so um, there are many, many states where sending that photograph is a felony offense. It's the distribution of of child pornography. Um, I I don't like child pornography, that phrase. Child sexual um, exploitation material is is a better phrase. Um, Pornography suggests that it's consensual. Um, So exploitation material, and, and the person who receives it is now in possession of that, which is also a felony offense. And in many, many states, that's also a registerable sex offense right? Where they have to register as a sex offender for life. Now, many states, including my own, like Washington, they're trying to catch up and recognize, you know, that maybe a a felony registrable sex offense is not appropriate for two teens who are sending, you know, naked selfies back and forth, um, depending on the ages of the people involved. But, you know, you got to know what the law is, where, where you are and where the person is that you're sending it. And it's a big risk. So that was a really long winded way of saying, you know, there's no perfect answer to this, but if we can have some of these conversations early and before the fact, um, place some parental controls and monitoring on those devices, at least as they're, you know, developing some, some internet savvy and then um, trying to help them remedy it if a mistake is made without shame, anger and judgment, cause that's just not gonna help anybody
0: we're talking with Christy Keating. She is a certified parent uh, coach and she's the CEO of a company called Savvy Parents Safe Kids. Um, I want to ask you one more question if you have just a moment, and then I want to make sure you give your contact information also. Uh, That question is, if you had to give give parents, this is a loaded question, if you (laughs) had to give parents one piece of advice when it comes to consent and teaching consent, what would it be?
1: Yeah, the one piece of advice that I think I would give would be to recognize that um, mistakes on both sides of the equation can be made by any kid. You know, I hear parents say, not my kid. My kid would never do that. Um, And, or my kid would never put herself in a position where she was vulnerable. My son would never do, you know, he would never violate someone's boundaries. So my number one piece of advice is to get rid of the not my kid language um, and recognize, yes, potentially my kid. And therefore, I've got to have these conversations early and often.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. So how can how can parents get a hold of you?
1: Yeah. So the best way that parents um, can find me, I'm actually, uh, you know, my parent coaching website is the Heartful Parent dot com h e a r t f u l and i'm bringing everything including savvy parents safe kids under under one um site this fall which i'm really excited about so if your listeners would like to get more information on this specific issue of consent um i have two free downloads for them one is a a five-page handout um on how to talk to them about it 10 rules for talking about consent. Um, It's got those circles of intimacy um, that I mentioned um, and a bunch of recommended reading. So that's one handout. And then the other is a handout with um, an acronym that I developed called the Omegas of consent, which just helps our um, parents and tweens and teens understand exactly what does consent mean? What is the actual definition of it? And those handouts are available for free download at theheartfulparent.com slash consent.
0: Great, thank you so much. And I, um, when I publish this, it'll probably be a few weeks. I will always, uh, in my show notes, put those links as well. So if parents didn't write that down, uh, when you see this podcast on my website, the, the, in the show notes, it'll be that that link as well.
1: Fantastic, thank you. Thank
0: you. Yeah, thanks for the information. That was great. It sounds like uh, you're doing a lot of really, good things for parents all over, not just in Washington state, but all over the place.
1: Yeah. Well, I, you know, this is a a labor of love for me as I, I know it is for you too. Um, and I, I am grateful for the time to share this information with your audience and, and hopefully help a few parents out there have some better conversations with their kids.
0: Okay. So, um, I will put the, again, I'll put her contact information on, on the link, or the, or the link for her contact information on the uh, show notes. So make sure you check uh, that out. Thank you so much for being here on Raising Daughters. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed the interview with Christy Keating. Uh, I think it's, it's a really important topic. And I always tell parents, just like with the sex talk it's really not so much about the details. It's really about relationships. It's about empathy and relationships and, and setting boundaries and resolving conflicts and, and your deservability. And it's, it's about a lot of things more than just having the right words. So um, look, at, look, look at Christy Keating's website. She has, she has a lot of good information on there about the whole topic of consent. I will be back here in a week or two with another podcast. Occasionally I slip in a blog instead of a podcast uh, just because I like to write as well. But I, I'm glad you stopped by. If this was interesting to you, this would be a good one again to listen to with your daughter. Um, I think she'd probably get a lot out of listening to Christine and what she had to say about consent as well as for you and, and your friends about how do you parent kids to learn about consent. I will see you back here in a week or so. Uh, thanks so much for stopping by.